here in America, all of our religious training has been gotten by the preacher. He has told us of a heaven way up in the sky that we can't enjoy now, but rather after we die. But all of the years that we're living, for us there's nothing but hell, pain, torture, and misgiving. Yet the Bible speaks of a heaven filled with material luxury, which the white man and the preacher has right here, so we see. So, my friend, take it for what it's worth. Your heaven and your hell is right here on this earth. So let's check back into history, which rewards all research and tells us plainly that before the white man gained entry to the east, he was living in the caves of Europe, a ravenous beast, eating juniper roots and eating flesh raw, till God sent Moses to civilize him and teach him the law. Then following Marco Polo, an explorer, he gained entry into Asia and Africa. From China, he took silk and gunpowder. From India, he took jute, manganese, and rubber. He raped Africa of her diamonds and her gold. From the Mideast, he took barrels of oil untold. Raping, robbing, and murdering everything in his path, the whole black world has tasted of the white man's wrath. So, my friend, it's not hard to tell. A white man's heaven is a black man's hell. In 1968, the U.S. war in Vietnam was raging. American troops had occupied the country for over 10 years, carrying on a French colonial project. Now they were in the middle of an aggressive bombing and ground campaign. Two million Vietnamese people were killed over the course of the war. Independence must be achieved if there is to be little peace. But the people of Vietnam under the leadership of Ho Chi Minh, used guerrilla and conventional war tactics to successfully fight off the United States, the biggest and most technologically advanced military in the world. During the war, anger and confusion spread among the troops. Here's Cappy Pinderhues, professor of sociology. Things got so bad in the, in the military that there was these incidents of fragging. Fragging, when U.S. soldiers threw grenades at unsuspecting commanders. There were reports of at least 800 such attempts in the Army and Marines. I mean, it was so prevalent, they had a manual by the U.S. government for dealing with fragging. At home, the anti-war movement was swelling in size, with more and more people burning their draft cards and refusing to be deployed. I will not go 10,000 miles to help murder and kill another poor people simply to continue the domination of white slave masters over the darker people of the earth. The boxer Muhammad Ali was drafted but refused to go. I've said it once and I will say it again. The real enemies of my people are right here, not in Vietnam. I think the majority of the black community agreed with Muhammad Ali. No Vietnamese ever called me nigger, he said. 
He is a conscientious objector to war in general and to this particular war in Vietnam, and I would strongly endorse his actions on the basis of conscience. The city of Boston was a hub of anti-war activity. Starting in 1965, there were a series of public demonstrations. In 1968, 15,000 protesters watched 200 soldiers turn in their draft cards. The Mothers for Adequate Welfare joined the march. They walked downtown carrying posters. One said, Stop the war now. Black men should fight white racism, not Vietnamese freedom fighters. The fact is, and we don't like to face this, that we have been fighting against a basically decent revolutionary movement in Vietnam. In 1969, a record-breaking 100,000 people gathered on the Boston Common in protest of the war. Howard Zinn spoke at the demonstration. Is it any wonder that the people in Africa, the people in Latin America, the people in the Middle East, the people in Asia want to make revolutions and want to change their lives? And what are we doing about that? We are sending our military troops all over the world to keep them down. At the center of this anti-war movement, stood a growing political party called the Black Panthers. The Panthers combined community service programs with a political program of self-determination and socialist revolution. And basically the idea that it was important for people to have the power to determine their own destiny and that it was impossible for young children to learn if they had hungry bellies. Here's Kim Holland, who worked with the Panthers in Boston and New Bedford. The Black Panther Party was about service to the community, and one of the ways to do that was to provide food. And when did you join the party? Uh, Well, I tried to join the party when I was 14. (laughs) No, 15. They sent me home, and they said (laughs) I ran away to the party when I was in 7th or 8th grade. As a teenager... Kim Holland's role was to help out with one of their flagship community service programs called Free Breakfast for School Children. Then we got up every morning at 5.30 in the morning and went to the projects and opened up the kitchen and cooked it all up and served it, and then they went off to school. Public housing projects, including Columbia Point, provided a space where the Panthers could gather people and organize especially as projects brought together increasing numbers of the black, poor, and working class, who the Panthers saw as the most revolutionary force in society. We're going to arm. Certainly we're going to arm. We're going to arm because we're tired of getting shot at and beat on the head. We'll get what we want our own way. If we have to wipe out the city to do it, we'll do it. Right. Revolutionary. Come. We're devoting this episode to the story of the Black Panthers, It's a chapter when Columbia Point tenants took their struggle for welfare and better housing conditions and advanced it to a new socialist stage. See what types of resources we have in Columbia Point. None. We have none. And that's what we're asking for. 5,000 people with nothing to take care of them, you know, nothing. From Jacobin Magazine, this is People's History. People from the inside experience love, tenacity, willpower. You're listening to our first six-episode season, The Point. The Point was not valued 
like it is today in terms of it being a piece of property. They're like, we want this property, we want people gone. Yeah. This is real intimidation. This is honest to goodness. You know, this is life or death here. The police invaded Columbia Point. So the men, they, they picked up the arms. This is episode four, Free Breakfast. You know, the Black Panthers were there, you know. They were our friends. I mean, they were of us. Then they were, like, sharing and educating us to some of the issues that we were, you know, and how to fight back. This is Angie Irving. She's a Panther supporter who grew up in a family of community activists. So I'm from a family of 12. There was six boys and six girls, so it's 14 of us. I don't know if we all lived in Columbia Point all at the same time, in the same apartment, because the age range is, you know, like a 20-year span, I think. My mother was a nurse, but after having so many children, she put that on hold until late 50s. And my dad was primarily business. He was CPA, public accountant. They call him Al Irving. And he also was the business manager of the Columbia Point Health Center. It was so funny because we could not find real fault in Columbia Point infrastructure until much later as we matured and realized all these other issues that were going on. However, my parents, our parents on the other hand, knew exactly what was going on and took on active and leadership roles within the community to help keep our community safe and make sure we got all the benefits from Boston housing that we should get. Panthers at Columbia Point started here at... um Winthrop Street, Roxbury, right here. It, um, this is Angie's sister, Linda. She and her late brother Juno became Panther organizers. We spoke with Linda at a library in Roxbury. For me, I was a kid. <laughs> I had my school uniform. I went to, I went to uh, Cotton Question Central High School. So I had my Catholic school uniform on and skipped right in the door and wanted to sell papers. And they gave me a bunch of papers to sell, you know? This was their famous weekly newspaper, called The Black Panther. The paper featured news about current events and illustrations by the artist Emery Douglas. At its peak, it had a circulation of 300,000. Stood out in the middle of the uh, street down here and sold papers, the Black Panther papers, (laughs) a quarter. Yeah, so that was my beginning. And then I brought them all home with me, all home to my mother and father, yeah. And they used to have political education meetings and some awareness-type meetings and all the little propaganda stuff that we used to love to talk about and, you know, those, those type of things. And my brother, my oldest brother, was also a panther. He was a panther. My brother, Juno, you know, he's passed away now. He was in the 70s. And uh, he was great. He was, oh, what an artist he was. And very prominent in the Black Panther Party and in this community also. But the Black Panther Party, that's how I began. I brought them all home to Mom. And um, I loved to hear the politics and the different points. If you give me another perspective, I want to hear it all. I want to know all of it. So what is the Red Book? And, and you know, all this. I, I wanted to, you know, that's the things my parents couldn't give me, so they gave me the other side of all of that. When Linda and Angie hosted Panther meetings in their Columbia Point apartment, 
they discussed articles in the Black Panther newspaper, along with The Little Red Book by Mao Zedong, and the Panthers' 10-point program. The 10-point program, number one, we want freedom. We want the power to control the destiny of our black communities. Number two, we want full employment for our people. Number three, we want an end to the robbery by the white man of our black communities. Number four, we want decent housing fit to shelter human beings. The program was both a summary of what the party was all about, as well as a list of demands based on everyday needs of life. Number seven, we want an immediate end to police brutality and murder of black people. Number eight, we want all black people to be released from the many prisons, city, county, and state jails that they are now being held in. So you had all of those uh, summarized, I guess, by point ten. Number ten, we want land, justice, housing, education, clothing, and peace. And as a major political objective, a United Nations supervised plebiscite to be held throughout the black colonies of America, in which only black people will participate to decide or determine the will of black people as to their national destiny. We want land, bread, education, clothing, housing, justice, and peace. So that kind of pulled it back together and then laid the basis for Panthers being actually socialist and Marxist-minded. Cappy Pinderhughes is a sociologist and former Panther. He sometimes joined Linda and Angie during those meetings at the point. These days, Cappy teaches at Essex County College, where he teaches a course on the Black Panthers, and so we asked him to give us some background. He described how the party was founded in 1966 by Huey Newton and Bobby Seale. But in Boston, the party didn't really take off until the summer of 1968. When Huey Newton went on trial, summer of 68, the Panthers made the choice of making it a political trial. In my case, it's definitely a confrontation between the uh, police department in particular, between the establishment and the colonized black people in general. Listen to this. We didn't come here on our free will. Our people were no. Documentary by the late Agnes Varda captures the scene in Oakland, 1968. Huey Newton had been arrested, and the party held a political rally outside the courthouse jail where he was detained. On this Sunday in August 1968, their purpose is to have one of their leaders, Huey Newton, released from jail. When they sing, they sing free Huey. When they dance, they clench their fists. People across the United States were seeing images of the Black Panthers more and more on television and hearing their songs. Republicans had a rooster, the Democrats had a donkey, so they had a black cat, the Panther. And that was the, that was the origin of that. The Panther was chosen as their symbol. It is a beautiful black animal which never attacks, but defends itself ferociously. Varda spoke with Newton in jail three months after he was arrested. It's a Marxist-Leninist program, and uh, I was greatly influenced by the uh, Cuban Revolution and Black Panther Party are practical revolutionaries. We uh, identify with the armed struggles of colonized people throughout the world. Kwame Ture was at the rally outside, speaking in solidarity. After serving as chairman of SNCC, he had joined the Panthers in a leading role. The United States to this day has not declared war 
Ture and Newton had a lot in common. They both believed that black people in the United States represented an internally colonized African nation, and they saw the police as the enforcers of that colonization. Yes, you have anytime you have systematic subordination uh, across a range of areas, including public health and safety, education, employment, housing, and it's you know. The, the group is systematically subordinated and geographically focused, you got a colony. And both men agreed with the political principle that power grows from the barrel of a gun. But at the same time, there was a growing divide between Ture and Newton which had a dramatic effect on the Boston chapter. Ture, for his part, adhered to black nationalism, more along the lines of the Nation of Islam. Huey Newton, as a Marxist, stressed the need for a class-based revolution. Huey P. Newton says every black man, every Mexican-American, every Indian, and every white radical has got to get themselves armed so we can have the power in our hands. So we can have the power in our hands sort of a uh, kind of split. Does that... Yeah, that's, that's true. I remember that. This is Floyd Hardwick, the Boston Minister of Education. He says the old Boston Black Panther leaders, including a man named Chico Neblet, supported Kwame Ture. Chico Neblet. Him and his wife were very good people and very, very Afrocentric, very American black. You know, and that was their main thing. They were more like what do we, I can't remember what we call people like Pan-Africanist yeah more, more like that Ron Karanga and all that but somehow or another it didn't work for me you know I, I thought I thought it was suicidal <laughs> the rift grew and Ture was then pushed out of the organization at the end of 1968 into 1969 his followers in Boston were iced out the new leadership included Doug Miranda, who coordinated activity across the Northeast. Doug, Doug was a master at fundraising. There was one guy, I can't remember his name, he would get guns from the Italian section. Somewhere, somehow he had a connection to get guns. And the new Boston chapter leader was a woman named Audrea Jones. What was she like as a, as a leader? She was very decisive. She was tough, and she was good, and uh, and we all loved her. Mm. I still, you know, she could take the hard line, but make the hard line sweet. With the chapter now reestablished as a Marxist organization, there was an explosion of Panther activity in Boston from 1969 to 1972. At Columbia Point, the Irving family and their neighbors played a key role in recruiting and orienting new Panthers. They started a free clothing program. Most of the Panthers that were here in Boston weren't from Boston. They were from points of California, New York, Chicago, and 
And so, so didn't know much of the neighborhoods. They didn't know so much of the history um, or the politics of Commonwealth, you know, or, or the city of Boston, let alone, you know, what's going on, you know, and what Columbia Point is. But um, uh, so we brought them up to date and up to speed to what, uh, you know, over the years of what was going on and how they could be more effective in our community. This is where we pulled them into, you know, we had the, the space, the means, the time, and all we needed was the food, the money, and the shoes, you know, whatever else they wanted to bring out to us, you know. And so that's where that began. Those little political meetings just turned into discussions on how to improve ourselves and how to help others in the neighborhood in any little little way we can, any little kind of way. And that included just anything from food to a couple of dollars, you know, to to shoes, anything. We had a shoe program, too. The old manufacturers were giving away shoes. Quincy Bargain Center, when they had done what they they used to donate shoes to. They didn't know they would donate to the Black Panther Party, but they did. And all those things came up to the point where at least the kids had better footwear than... <laughs> <laughs> they didn't have holes in their shoes, and they had hats and gloves on their heads. Yeah, but those little items meant it, it meant something. It was a difference. It meant somebody's warm. But for myself, I, like I said, I bought them all home to my mother and father, and um, and had good talks. And they became friends over the years, you know. So you know that's that's how the Panthers landed up in the point. Free clothing was just one of many Serve the People programs, programs that gave direct services to the community. What was first called People's Programs, and then after 71, they changed the political line of the organization to Survival Pending Revolution. They started being called Survival Programs, but initially they were People's Programs, free health clinics, uh, free clothing, uh, free groceries, and so forth. There were political education classes, drug programs to help people with addiction, free bus transportation to visit loved ones in prison. When a man named Joseph Fontes moved into an Irish section of Dorchester, a white segregationist threw a brick through his window and injured him. So, throughout June and July of 1969, the Panthers provided round-the-clock protection for the family. The chapter went on to establish a hotline for Boston residents who were being threatened by neighbors and the police. They launched their most well-known program, Free Breakfast for School Children, in May of 1969. And, you know, I I think it was one of the programs which really helped many people understand that the Panthers really did have an interest, a fundamental interest in the welfare of the people. And we talked about serving the people, being servants of the people all the time. Uh, And this was, I think, uh, a good example of doing that. It started in Mission Hill, a black housing project in Roxbury, where they fed over 250 children each week. It then spread to other projects like Columbia Point. 1971 was free breakfast. 7071. And, um, and so all of us, the women, men in the community, a real community effort. And this is a philosophy from um, the Panthers that, you know, children who were fed learned better. They were better participants in their classroom. Because Columbia Point was becoming a place for emergency housing, a lot of the families were much poorer. 
people who were homeless or, what, you know, for whatever reason, emergency were coming. Mm-hmm. And so they were the neediest of groups Absolutely. that we were working with. Mm-hmm. And because of that, um, and the Panthers came in right behind that. They knew working in Chicago and other places, when you create this kind of life, that if you don't have the community support to support the families in there, it's just going to be, you know, a lot of problems. I worked in it. I worked in it. Once you go there, you know, the kids are kids, you know? I think we all love the, the breakfast program just because the kids, how they, how kids are. From what to Brownsville, we find misery. We'd get there around 6.30, quarter to 7, someone opened up the door. So my job was to make the pancakes. And the kids, they came in droves. And then the um, little kitchen off on the second floor. And then there's a big, like an auditorium, big open space. And all the kids would be in this big open space. And there would be a big screen or something. Well, I was in charge of setting the tables and practicing yeah, the thoughts. All these tables and the kids would come and they would all sit around. There would be a lot of noise and excitement. And we'd get them fed with their pancakes, because that was my job, mixing that pancakes and getting those pancakes out there. And we bought the food one day at a time. So then I would, I would go to the store and buy juice and eggs and protein and milk, bacon, and get fruit. Eating, they were eating. And they seemed like they wouldn't have been eating if they weren't there eating. You know, they're, they're so innocent and they're just so honest, and their eyes are so. I want some more eggs. <laughs> I want some more grits. I remember some of the parents would be have the responsibility of ushering the kids. Kids only had to go. You know, like across the street, about 500, 600 feet across the street to the school. And someone would just usher them out. As fast as those kids came in, they ate and then out again. So, And my kids were babies, and I had them on my back cooking. One little kid on my back and another one, you know, holding on to my shirt, my pants leg as I cooked. And then after that, you know, I wasn't working at the time. So then after that, I went home after we cleaned up and then got ready for the next day. And at the same time, we were educating our young people and families about the issues of Vietnam War, the atrocities that were going on. The Panthers used the breakfast gathering to show videos about imperialism in Vietnam and connect it to what was going on at Columbia Point. Um, They were showing how uh, Americans were using babies as baits. So what did you think about that? I thought it was eye-opening. That's where I became involved. When I saw... You know, we always knew there was issues in America, but not to that extent. I could not believe that the war was built, you know. I thought we were trying to protect America when I realized where it was more the interest of land, you know, 
not about protecting America, but taking someone else's land, you know, from a whole different perspective. There were resources that were in the other area, but how they were doing, the, the way that they were fighting, and they were using babies. And I used to, like, do this all the time, saying, how can we watch this? But, you know, it was a, it was a reminder of what this country was doing. And then how it all uh, mirrored what was going on in Columbia Point, that, that these were all connected and it was happening to us all the time. We don't know exactly what film they were showing, but there were many instances in which American troops in Vietnam were ordered to destroy the homes of civilians, killing children and babies. The mass murder at My Lai was just one example of the U.S. military using tactics of terror, rape, and genocide to try and shock the Vietnamese people into submission. Of course, the Vietnam War was very, very prevalent and very a part of our community because we did have people that went to Vietnam and didn't come back. Some that, and the ones that did come back were... Came back drug addicts. A lot of people came back, alcoholism, but more drug addicts and mental instability than I ever could ever imagine. I remember growing up with these young men you know, who were pretty strong and pretty active, when they came back, they were not the same people at all. In fact, you know, one guy I really liked a lot, who I thought could, you know, be president of the United States, came back all messed up, and he became a, a, a thief. He was uh, on the bus one time pickpocketing people, and he was just so zoned out. Another guy, <laughs> sorry to have to share this part, had asked me to prostitute, you know, asked me to you know, to get out in the street and everything like that. And, and you've seen this just cut across the community. Anyone and everyone, even the folks in my family in, in Connecticut, the same thing after Vietnam. They were not the same anymore. I just know that the men that we had in Columbia Point, nobody lived to be 65 years old. No one lived to be even 60. They all passed away before that. And it was due to more injuries, which they had inadequate care for during that time, and um, PTSD, which wasn't uh, uh, um, diagnosed, I don't think, during that time, or just beginning to, those were the things that they suffered. The brutality of police only intensified as the Panthers ramped up their survival programs. The police were the the culprits. Once we started doing these kind of programs, you know, suddenly the police were in our faces. Every time we turned around, every time we did something, someone was saying, the police is coming, you know, and we were doing the right thing, but it became like, we're going to get arrested for feeding the kids, or we're going to get arrested for having, you know, congregating in some way, shape, or form. So everything became military. There were raids when I was there, you know, Boston, Boston police regularly kicked the door in, and, um, you know, those were a violation of rights and everything else. It was just terror acts. They sit there with guns pointed and you can hear their rifles or whatever, shotguns. And, you know, it was terrifying. And it was just for terror. And then they drive away and go back. There were police always around and they were always in plain clothes. And then there were these men, black men, who were part of the police force who lived like they were in the community. So it got very, very confusing, you know, who was what, um, and they were creating dissension between the ranks within the community. One thing the Panthers taught us how to protect ourselves, our bodies, 
you know, so if there was a police raid, how to drop roll and, you know, tuck your body in, you know, cover your head, you know, things like that, how to get into a ball. I remember learning those kinds of things because those things did happen uh, to other people where there were raids, police raids. And, you know, if you stood up straight, you were going to get it really, really bad. Mm -hmm. And they taught us how to, you know, drop and roll. There were these raids. The police would come in in these big armored trucks, and you could see them coming in. The Panthers People's News Service, a newsletter started by Cappy Penderhughes, documents one particularly violent episode from June 1970. One day, a black Columbia Point mother was with her kids out in the parking lot of the local stop-and-shop. An off-duty cop, passing by, began angrily shouting at the children, calling them dogs and savages, and using the N-word. The mother protested, but then the cop got angrier and called in backup, 12 cruisers and three paddy wagons. Meanwhile, Lucille Seely was back at home at Columbia Point. She was a mother of four sons. The Seely boys, Belton Seely, John Seely, Ammon Seely, and David Seely. She heard of something happening down the street and became worried because Alvin was at the stop and shop with his friend. I don't know what was going over there, and they didn't either. The young man that Alvin went with, his mother had sent him to the store to get something, and they walked into that. The scene exploded. When the cops showed up, they started assaulting and arresting any black person they saw. A pregnant woman saw her nephew being arrested by six cops and asked what was going on. She was thrown into the back of a truck and kicked. The cops attacked a 12-year-old girl. Her brother, Philip, came in to defend her. Don't hit my sister again, he said. The cops arrested the brother for assault and battery. A man named Mr. Kindle was arrested along with his sons and beaten too. Alvin started running home to the project to tell his mom what was happening. They started running, and one of those guys... I think uh, the police or something thought they was in it, but they wouldn't. Cops shot at the 16-year-old boy, thankfully missing. Alvin froze in place, but then the cop came up with the butt of his gun. And uh, Alvin got hit. After police beat him with a gun, they arrested him. In their article, the Panthers described these events as clear examples of terrorism connected to an escalating war on black people. The new stage of this war was marked by the construction of a state police barracks right on Carson Beach, next to Columbia Point. The Panthers described the building as an outpost, where the state police could keep a close check on the project and make it easier to, quote, carry out fascist tactics on the people. The article ends, To the people of Columbia Point and all poor and oppressed people, it's either arm yourselves or harm yourselves. Fascism must be wiped out with people power. Black is beautiful! Free hood! Said I want it free! Free hood! Black is no more brothers in jail! Off the beat! The pigs are gonna catch hell! Off the beat! No more brothers in jail! Off the beat! The pigs are gonna catch hell! Off the beat! Revolution has come! Off the beat!
as was the case around the country, the Boston Panthers were subject to an intense, sustained campaign of harassment by the local police. The FBI was a major ally to the cops, subverting the activities of the Panthers and preventing them from gaining access to public city spaces. FBI agents wrote to the Boston Housing Authority to prevent the Panthers from hosting breakfast programs in the projects. So, the BHA shut down the Mission Hill program in the summer of 1970. The Panthers were asked by residents of another project, Orchard Park, to bring the breakfast program to them, but going along with the FBI, the BHA refused. In fact, throughout the whole of the civil rights movement, the government had used the FBI to harass a broad range of black militant groups. It was a massive counterintelligence program, known as COINTELPRO, which used infiltration, harassment, and assassination to try and, quote, neutralize left-wing groups. The FBI's main target was the Black Panthers, which the head of the FBI identified as the greatest threat to the internal security of the United States. The communists in this country organized very in intensely uh, a drive to infiltrate into the racial uh, discord and discontent in the country. In fact, of the 295 COINTELPRO operations, 233 targeted the Panthers. There were raids when I was there, you know, about some... Boston police regularly kicked the door in, and, um, you know, those were a violation of rights and everything else. It was just terror acts. They sit there with guns pointed, and you can hear their rifles or whatever, shotguns. And, you know, it was terrifying, and it was just for terror. And then they drive away and go back. This is real intimidation. This is honest-to-goodness you know, this is life or death here. I remember once I was over here in this office over here in uh, Winthrop Street, and it was raided. You know, the police came and said there were guns in there, but there were whatever. The, oh, my God. They had a whole police force. I couldn't breathe. I could not. I couldn't take a breath. Break down the door. Threatened to shoot the police down with everybody in it. And of course they did that in Chicago, you know, like, and on other places. And I couldn't breathe. But the Panthers and the growing militant movement would not be so easily repressed. In 1970, back in Boston, police shot and killed an unarmed man named Franklin Lynch in a hospital. The officer, Mark Duggan, was found not guilty by the city court. So the Panthers responded to the Lynch shooting with one of their most important survival programs. The Franklin Lynch People's Free Health Center opened in May of 1970. It was a small clinic in a trailer on land cleared for a highway project. The clinic provided first aid and basic medical information to the surrounding community and served as a first-line emergency center. When patients with more serious problems arrived at the clinic, the Panthers would provide transportation to hospitals and advocate for the rights of black patients, who were frequently mistreated by Boston doctors and nurses. The clinic was also where the party tested patients for sickle cell anemia, a genetic condition that was overlooked by Boston's medical establishment. When the Black Panther Party was operating, um, there was m minimal, if any, attention 
to the disease of sickle cell anemia because it was a, quote, black disease, and there was no research. There was no screening. Here's Kim Holland again. She helped screen patients and worked at the trailer cleaning floors. Yeah, we did screening in New Bedford. We did screening in Rhode Island. We did screening in Boston. I mean, I remember having the little lancets and learning how to prick people's fingers and how to get the blood out, put it in the little tubes, and, you know, doing the education as to what this meant. I mean, the Black Panther Party was the first organization to talk about health care inequities and um, in that way. Holland's hometown of New Bedford, 60 miles south of Boston, had a lot of similarities to the community at Columbia Point. It was suffering from issues of white flight, austerity, and unemployment. There's jobs out there to be had, but they don't want to give them to the black girls. And a lot of us are qualified to take some of them. And this is what probably had caused some of the trouble here. A black carpenter described the feeling to a reporter in 1970. We are trapped here, he said. We can't get out. In July 1970, with support of the Black Panthers, the people of New Bedford decided they had enough. Tonight, we're presenting a special program on the Black Rebellion in New Bedford. The producer, Ray Richardson, covered the event in a pioneering documentary for the program Say Brother on Boston Public Television. The Masonic Lodge in the West End was burned down, and the Reynolds Building, which housed the Model Cities Agency and was considered an historic landmark, was burned down too. It intensified after teenagers breached the barricades erected on Kempton Street and murdered a black teenager named Lester Lima. They also wounded three others, including Kim Holland, with a shotgun. I remember being 15, and after I was shot by whichever one of those three white guys it was, they changed the venue of the trial. So they had an all-white jury in an all-white town, and the man admitted in court that he'd done the killing and he still got off. After the shooting, an electronic store on Kempton Street was burned down, and a dusk-to-dawn curfew was imposed on the city. On July 13th, the Panther Parky Grace led a takeover of Piricini's Variety Store, which had been burned out during the early stages of the revolt. Joined by other Panthers and young people in the West End, they fortified the store with sandbags and aimed at the local headquarters of the National Committee to Combat Fascism people erected barricades in the West and South Ends to defend themselves. And right now, we have got unity. We got it today, and tomorrow, and next week, and next year, and from now on, because we got it. Would you call it a rebellion? I would call it a revolution. That's a better word. Thank you very much. I call it a start of something that is going to keep on going. Watch this black community. We're going to... Our reach right now is definitely exceeding our grasp because we can grab everything that's downtown but we don't want everything that's downtown we want everything for the, every black community that's here not here in New Bedford but here for a long time New Bedford has been a sleeping giant the giants woke up The ray of hope only lasted so long. On July 31st, 
a white New Bedford resident claimed he had been shot at from the office. A bullet had grazed his ankle as he drove by. That was the excuse the New Bedford police needed to shut down the headquarters. 75 local and state police officers raided the headquarters, seized weapons, and arrested 21 people. The charges against the arrestees would eventually be dropped. Former Panthers speculated that the cases were dismissed to prevent further civil disturbances. The rebellion in New Bedford marked one of the last major acts for the local Panthers. Internal issues and conflict within the party never left, and constant police repression and infiltration, as well as the impact of drugs, made worse those internal contradictions. The organization started its slow decline from 71 to, the, uh, to 82. Panthers moved to a more modern position that dissolved the chapter, and then people who were willing moving to the Oakland area so Bobby Seale could run for mayor in um, 70, late 72 and into 73. The more moderate Panthers attempted to bring about reform within the electoral system, Audrea Jones and Doug Miranda left the city of Boston to work on Seal's electoral campaign, which lost. Pinder Hughes stayed in Boston, where he continued to work as a journalist. But he says the organizing climate was starting to change. That was when the summer of 72 was when I developed Self Struggle newspaper. In terms of radical politics, there were some people like a progressive labor party, but they really didn't speak directly to the immediate demands of the black community, so they'd never really had much of a following. At Columbia Point, the Panthers were now gone, and conditions were still getting worse, with an increased police presence and total neglect on the part of the BHA. They had a military an agenda militarily, and they accomplished that. But then they would under siege, demoralize, and humiliate, and they did that. And so that really it was effective with the people. Despair, anguish, fear. Those things effectively worked through the neighborhood. And then, then losing more funding, holding back more funding, and all of the other things, services, not being rendered there properly. In 1973, the Columbia Point Tenant Council, now led by uh, Deborah Myers, sent letters to the embassies of places including Sweden, China, and the Soviet Union, requesting international aid. The letter read, While President Nixon is adding millions of dollars to the U.S. military budget to rebuild cities destroyed by U.S. bombs, he is cutting back millions of dollars from the vitally needed social services to poor people in Columbia Point and across the whole United States. That to me was the beginning, and it seemed like a big blank hole was in the point then. You know, it was blank. And uh, that was it as far as the uh, point. But during this same period, the forces of reaction were growing stronger as well. In Irish South Boston, just across the bay, a movement against school desegregation empowered a growing trend of white nationalism. I am white. 
right and I want my rights. In September 1974, it was unleashed in full force. They were looking for a controlled explosion and they got what they wanted. People's History is produced by Alison Bruzek, Rihanna Fernandez-Nunez, Connor Gillies, Rosie Gillies, Kainat Khan, and me, Alejandro Ramirez. Research help from Patrick King, Caitlin Rose, and Ed Padgett. Fact-checking and editing by Laura Foner and Bill Cunningham. Our theme music is by Marissa Anderson, and our score is by Visitor, which is a project of Liz Harris and Ilyas Ahmed. People's History Podcast is an independent radio series. It is not related to the book A People's History of the United States or related projects. A People's History is presented by Jacobin Magazine with help from the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. Thank you for listening.